The thunderstorms would happen. They would, you know, literally scare the pants off of me. That's a taste of what you're going to hear in this episode. My name is Jay Familietti. I'm the host of Let's Talk About Water. Groundwater is a specialty with my next guest. She's not just analyzing what's happening with it, but what should happen to keep it from totally disappearing when dry times hit. And that's just a bit of what I learned during our live recording of Let's Talk About Water. That's right, there was an audience. You could call it a captive audience since we were in a conference hall surrounded by people. For this episode, I headed down to San Francisco for a gathering of some of the brightest minds in the science world. The American Geophysical Union, or AGU, held its annual fall meeting in San Francisco this year. In my world, this conference is a pretty big deal. By the way, this year is the 30th year in a row that I went to the AGU meeting. There are tens of thousands of scientists, I'm not kidding, all in the same place. The people there study water, air, space, the atmosphere, land, and we all meld our minds together to save Earth. Or at least, that's what I like to think we're doing. While we were there, we did a live recording from our booth, and that's what we have for you for this episode. <laughs> okay. 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 Let's 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 talk 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 we're here at the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco, California. The American Geophysical Union, or the AGU meeting as we call it, is the biggest meeting of Earth scientists in the world. There's probably about 30,000 people here and, and uh, at least a hundred people in our immediate vicinity right now. Uh, it's a great place. It's incredibly uh, vibrant. We've got our on-air signal. Uh, we actually do have it. We have our on-air signal going. It's still buzzing in here. Uh, I have managed to wrangle a guest into our makeshift studio for the week. Uh, this is Bridget Scanlon. Uh, she works in sustainable water resources at the University of Texas at Austin. Her official title is Senior Research Scientist in the Bureau of Economic Geology in the Jackson School of Geosciences. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Jay. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much uh, for coming. I want to ask you if you remember the first time we met. Now, we didn't fall in love, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it was... Uh, geez, it must have been like 1990. So you were, I was a, uh, a postdoc, right, at Princeton, and you were there visiting Mike Celia. And I think you walked in, and we had a little conversation, and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to be working at UT Austin. Do you remember that? I do, I do. <laughs> so it's been a long time. So we go back, right, it's almost 30 years. In fact, I realized the first time I came to this meeting was 1989. So I've been coming to this meeting for 30 years. So we have been, we've been at it uh, for a while. Can you uh, explain your area of expertise to our listeners? Well, I work on a number of different topics and it's morphed through my career. Uh, but currently I'm working on uh, gray satellite data and uh, looking at it uh, 
applications in the US and comparing it with the regional groundwater models and groundwater level monitoring data because we have a lot of monitoring data and ground-based data in the US to compare with GRACE. And this is part of the Powell Research uh, Group um, connecting with NASA and US Geological Survey researchers on that topic. Another area that I've been working on is um, energy and uh, water issues related to unconventional oil and gas uh, production. And uh, we've also been looking at uh, floods and droughts and how we can manage those extremes in Texas. Mm. Yeah, so, so some is, of the topics. Yeah, so I mean, this is a big deal. Let's talk about the, the uh, extremes of, of flooding and drought. Um, so I remember, right, I lived there for eight years, and it was uh, some of the most extreme weather that I have ever experienced. Um, when the thunderstorms would happen, they would, you know, literally scare the pants off of me. Um, after some of those big tornadoes came through, when I was there uh, between 94 and 2001, we had that big F5 that came through. I still have nightmares about, about tornadoes. So... I mean, how do you think um, the state, or it, do you feel like the state is prepared? Are you able to help the state prepare with whatever, with models, with observations for how these extremes are changing? Well, I think uh, one of the ways, uh, we've always been either in a flood or a drought. Uh, and so um, we've had a lot of time to think about this. And uh, so recently, uh, one of my collaborators, uh, Chen Yang, in our group, has quantified how much water we could capture from extreme uh, flows, high magnitude flows from the rivers in the, uh, Texas, um, if we focused on the 95th percentiles. Um, and so she estimated that uh, we could uh, capture about um, 30 cubic kilometers or 30 million acre feet, mm. approximately equal, That's uh, huge. between 2015, 16, and 17, three wet years. That's almost twice the water use in the state in 2017. How much did you say? Did you say 30 million? 30 million acre feet or 30 cubic kilometers. They're almost equal. Right. Isn't that about like the, the volume of Lake Mead? Yes. That's amazing. So then the question, so when I hear about, so of course it's great, right? I mean, I think when we think about capturing stormwater, um, you know, the only reason we don't capture stormwater is because of human development, right? So, the, you know, we've developed the floodplains, and depending on where you are, like when I lived in the L.A. area, all of the rivers were paved over with concrete. So there's really no way to uh, infiltrate water, no way to store water in floodplains. Um, but how much do you think you could actually capture? I mean, it's one thing to talk about the volume. Like, how do you physically do the capturing? Well, I mean, this was the first step, trying to figure out how much water was there. Is it worth going after? Yeah. The second step, then, is the logistics. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, um, but uh, in the Pasadena area, there are these huge, uh, basically, stormwater capture basins. And so it becomes a challenge, right? Because you have to buy, if you're the city, you have to buy the property. And in an arid regions like California, most of the time that means it's sitting idle, right? And so it becomes a, like a really big challenge. Like how can we justify, the yeah, we know it's important, right? Mm -hmm. And you just said like we could capture this much water, but someone has to pay that money. Right. Um, so um, one of the surprising findings from this study was that, um, you know, we think these floods happen overnight and you have a very little time to capture them. 
but 80% of the volume of that water uh, had a residence time of at least a week. Wow. Okay. So, so, so it's hanging around. A little bit. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Well, a week is a pretty long time. And if you had the, uh, you know, enhanced, you know, permeability or enhanced infiltration or something like that, it sounds like you could really capture a lot. Well, I think in the West, what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, with the irrigation infrastructure... Uh, that provides the infrastructure to capture it. So I think we're going to be moving more and more towards engineering approaches to move towards more sustainable management. And it's managing these extremes, resolving the disconnect between floods and droughts and and supply and demand. Right. So, of course, then storing that stormwater would help out during droughts. Right. Right. And we have uh, quite a few depleted aquifers. Mm. And uh, so in the Houston area, we have the Gulf Coast aquifer there that uh, could store that amount of water uh, if we could get it in, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so in the West, we have many depleted aquifers too, like the Central Valley and other Mm -hmm. regions uh, to store that excess water. We need a portfolio of options to manage uh, water demand in the future. Conservation, brackish groundwater, um, surface water, groundwater, conjunctive use, you know, all sorts of options. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it's important for, uh, certainly for the public to recognize that, is that there isn't going to be a silver bullet like, oh, we're going to find this new technology and that's going to be the answer to our uh, to all of our problems. I think, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, um, there's so many things. Uh, and also policy innovations and economic you know, issues with water pricing. There's so many things that can be done. We're going to take a little breather here. Our Let's Talk About Water team went out to hear from a few more people. We wanted to find out from people on the street, how much do you think about where the water you use comes from? So we asked them. I don't think much about where my water comes from, but I probably should because it's very important to everyday life and <laughs> I don't know. I will admit I'm not exactly the most conscious about where my water does go. I think about where the water that I use comes from a bit less than I would like to. You know, it's always on my mind about, you know, where is this water coming? Where, where is it going to? Where our water comes from is depleting because we are we are using it so rapidly that, and especially in a system that takes so long to recharge, um, we are using it at a rate that is dangerous. You know, one of the things that really upsets me is that, you know, you talk about, you know, people are really on about Alberta pollution and, and you know, the oil sands, and, and but, but whatever they do up water stream for me affects me. All right, let's get back into our interview with Bridget Scanlon. I think there's a lot of interest uh, these days in all of the water that's co-produced with oil and gas. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. Okay, so mm-hmm. let's yeah, so let's talk about that co-production and what happens with that with that water. I know just uh, in California we were starting to talk about it. You probably know better than I do what's happened there, but I just remember there was a great sensitivity to using that water for food production for uh, because of questions over the uncertainty of the of the actual quality. Right. So uh, because uh, it's a large volume, there's a lot of interest in beneficially using that water. So the best use of that water would be to uh, recycle it and reuse it for the energy industry itself to support hydraulic fracturing. But then you have a competing interest. You've got landowners and other groups wanting to sell water to operators for hydraulic fracturing. 
So, uh, you know, and that reduces how much you're going to uh, produce water you're going to reuse for hydraulic fracturing. So that's one of the concerns. Um, Traditionally, we've uh, managed that produced water by putting it into the subsurface and saltwater disposal wells. But then in Oklahoma, there was a lot of induced seismicity caused by that. And so there's concerns about induced seismicity. Is there enough space in the subsurface? Uh, What might happen? Right. So um, the Groundwater Protection Committee uh, evaluated um, reuse within the energy sector and also use in other sectors such as irrigated agriculture and producing non-food crops, or what impact would it have in the soil. And from a quantity perspective, we are finding that it's uh, unconventional shale oil and gas is not uh, producing um, a huge volumes of water that it could be used to solve water scarcity issues. But irrigated agriculture could accommodate the yeah. produced water volumes. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, especially a, a state like like Texas, you know, uh, I mean, that, that is so big that a small percentage change is actually a lot of water. So right. again, I think um, you know the portfolio idea um, points to the need to do a number of different things, including things that are on the smaller side. It's okay. I think they're still going to be important. But you mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about. I've always really thought about, but never really had the time to explore, and that is. Um, do you see a time when there will be a competition for porosity underground? So to store, right? I mean, we could be storing brines, you know, oil production, wastewater, carbon sequestration, right? Have you thought about that? Do you think that we will get to a point in our future where we'll be competing over that porosity, that space? I, I think that's uh, a possibility, definitely. Yeah. You know, I think uh, someone should do a study on that. Maybe someone who works at the Bureau of Economic Geology. <laughs> yeah, I've wondered about that a lot. I think the other thing to think about is that, uh, you know, we have um, the geology impacts the groundwater quality. And uh, so, you know, arsenic or uh, salt units uh, yeah. can also create high total dissolved solids in water so you you see that in California you see it in uh, West Texas um, you know these geogenic contaminants and so we need to understand that some things are naturally occurring yeah and uh, so treating those and dealing with yeah. those is uh, is an issue yeah I think uh, people don't realize sometimes that things like arsenic are naturally occurring um, but you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't we don't know about. Maybe the last thing I want to talk to you about is uh, some of these standards and the ideas in the United States, anyway, and some other countries around the world that uh, we don't really proactively go and look for things in our water. We're more responsive. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, you know, if we're not looking for it, we don't find it. I mean, how do you feel about that contamination and? mostly in the United States, even as a, a customer, right, as someone who turns on the tap, that, uh, you know, I think the public feels like our state and our federal government uh, have their eye on water quality and are testing for everything, and I th- or they used to feel like this. Um, do you agree with that, or do you think people feel differently about their tap water today? Well... I think uh, it's difficult to understand, especially when you're not in the field, and even when you are in the field, it's sometimes difficult to understand. 
you know, we can measure things at much lower levels now, and maybe they may not be high risk, but it's difficult for us to understand. We just don't want any of it in the water. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, and so that's just not that realistic. But the yeah. risk assessment yeah. with it and understanding the health impacts and yeah. all of that and the trade-offs. And yeah. we don't want to... Um, spend an arm and a leg on treating for everything and right and we could never treat for everything right right i mean right. You know, it's true we all want that water to be coming from the the pristine like in the tv commercials from the pristine uh stream with the unicorn jumping over the rainbow but the reality is that you know there's stuff in our atmosphere and there's stuff in our soils and in our rivers and uh it gets into our water but I agree. I mean, we really need to understand uh, what levels are. So I guess this is my point, is that we, we check for some things and we understand the levels of toxicity and we understand that pretty well. But there are other things that we don't check for. And so that's, that's So that's why I think we have to be really careful. So, for example, with the uh, beneficial uses of produced water, you know, since we don't really understand the, the quality of that water, what's in it, then we, uh, if we think we're going to use it beneficially in say irrigated agriculture we need to be very careful with the unintended consequences and we cannot do that until we understand the quality and the effectiveness of the treatment that would go on before it would be uh, and so there's a lot of research that needs to be done before we even think about using that in other right so that means that uh we never get to retire is that right? <laughs> uh, we might just drop dead in the morning. Yeah, well, uh, uh, and hopefully it's not the water that does it. So, so quick question for you. Do you drink tap water at home? I do. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do too. We recently found um, that we have lead in our pipes in our neighborhood. We live in an old neighborhood, and, and uh, the lead is approaching some of the flint levels. Uh, but we are filtering, like using right charcoal, activated charcoal filters, and the city is actually on it. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a health risk. Um, if I'm you know if I'm not here next week, we'll know that it was a health risk. Um, so that gives us some confidence, though, that the that the local uh, water authority is on it and, and, and taking action. So I mentioned that we have uh, uh, known each other for a long time, and uh, people who may be listening to this podcast can't actually see us, but uh, uh, we're not as young as we used to be. <laughs> and so, are there things that you, like you think about um, that you want to accomplish before you wrap it all up? I'm not really a planner. Okay. I just uh, try to optimize every opportunity and maximize yeah. uh, what what yeah. I can do. You right. Know. And right. I know it's limited, but no, no. I think that's a great that's a great approach. So you're you know you're squeezing the most out of every day, which uh, which is a great which is a great way to go. Okay. Well, thanks very much for talking to me this morning. Again, uh, this was Bridget Scanlon. She's at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, working on sustainable water resources in the Bureau of Economic Geology, which is part of the Jackson School of Geosciences. Thanks very much, Bridget. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, that wraps up our on-the-road interview at the AGU Fall Meeting in San Francisco. Let's Talk About Water is a podcast dedicated to the future of water and why you should care. If you want to hear more... Hit the subscribe button when you're listening. So, like, right now is a good time. Unless you're driving, then wait till later. We're on iTunes and any of your favorite podcasting apps. You can find us on Twitter, 
and Instagram at Let's Talk Water. If you want to find out more about the Global Institute for Water Security, head to our website, water.usask.ca. This is a podcast by the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan in collaboration with the Walrus Lab. A thanks to Mark Ferguson, Balash Sonio, and Chelsea Laskowski for helping put the podcast together. I'm Jay Familietti. We'll be back with a new episode on January 19th.